Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of the Marine Corps War College, covering the intersection of strategy, security, and warfare. Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of the Marine Corps War College. Today, we're discussing the Nordic Partnership in Cold Weather Operations. My guest today is Lieutenant Colonel Teria T.B. Beauregard, MCU's only international military faculty member. I first met T.B. when he was a student of mine at the Command and Staff College in 2012. He's recently received the Rose Award for Teaching Excellence for being the best military officer faculty member at Marine Corps University. And this is the first time in the university's history that an international officer has earned that honor. And I think it's also the first time that a first-year teaching faculty member has done so. So, yay, T.B. I'm delighted to brag on you a little bit. Lieutenant Colonel Beauregard's assignments include Infantry Squad Leader, Logistics Officer and Tank Platoon Commander in the Armored Battalion Brigade North, Assistant S3, Mechanized Infantry Company XO, Tank Squadron Commander and Commanding Officer of Telemark Battalion, which was a Mechanized Infantry Battalion, Brigade North, Spokesperson for the Norwegian Army Commanding General and Army Staff, and Senior Staff Officer in the Royal Norwegian Ministry of Defense, Department of Security Policy and Operations. In 2005, TB deployed as part of a Norwegian battle group to Kabul in support of ISAF, working with various Afghan security forces. In 2010, he deployed as a task unit commander in support of ISAF to conduct security and disrupt operations in the Faryab province, Afghanistan. He deployed with an advisor task force to Iraq in support of Operation Inherent Resolve in July 2017 to conduct embedded advise and assist operations at brigade level, supporting Iraqi army in the offense to clear ISIS out of Anbar. Lieutenant Colonel Beauregard, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. That was... Uh that was quite an introduction. <laughs> I feel so old when you speak I know, about right? all the stuff. So it's great being here. Thanks for uh, hosting this show. It's been great listening to all the uh, the various shows you've put on so far. So congratulations on the show. Well, thanks for coming on. We're we're excited to talk with you today. Before we start our discussion, though, can you tell us a little bit about your background working with the Marine Corps? This is not your first time. Marine Corps University isn't your only experience working with the United States Marines. So I've been 26 years in the Norwegian military, and uh, we never stopped practicing or exercising warfighting. So the, my first memory of the legendary Marines were on the uh, winter exercises in Norway in the 90s. So that was my first like real contact with them. Ever since, um, I've read about them, of course, uh, and and seen the, how the Marine Corps performs in, in, in the battles in Iraq and Afghanistan. I've always been impressed. So in 2007, when I was uh, asked if I wanted to go to expeditionary warfare school for like the captain's career course kind of thing, I jumped straight into it. So I was the first army officer to go there, and it was a fantastic experience. So after a couple of years, I applied for command staff college, and I came back here in 2012 as a student. So, and I was delighted that you yeah, did. Yeah, I enjoyed it even more. And after that, I became a battalion commander, and the Marines took up training again in Norway. So there's a rotational force there, and I was lucky to have one of the infantry companies attached to my battalion for, I would say, almost up to a month training in the in the cold northern environment, pretty close to the Russian border as well. So that was good. And of course... Uh, it all kind of culminated um, on a good note uh, when I went to Iraq as part of Task Force Al-Assad, uh, working for the Marine Corps Task Force. So I, I kind of feel that I speak MAGTAF. <laughs> well, that's great. So translate that into what you're doing here at Marine Corps University. What is the significance of having a Norwegian lieutenant colonel at the Command and Staff College or at MCU writ large? 
it's a twofold kind of thing. So for for me and for the Norwegian army, it's a great way of getting experience from from the de facto number one warfighting force in the world, which is the Marine Corps. Um, and I'm not just saying that. I mean, there's there's a lot of good experience for us to take back. And being able to to be a teacher uh, and a mentor for planning exercises and discussions of warfighting, war studies, security studies, and leadership in this environment brings a lot of good back to Norway. And I can also see that having, I think it's 40 years unbroken chain of students and 23 years of unbroken chain of fact advisors, there's definitely some Marine Corps influence into the Norwegian military, which is good for us. Yeah, well, that's interesting. So Marine Corps University, as a university, we're celebrating our 30th anniversary this year in 2019. So that means that we've had Norwegian officers on our faculty for almost as long as we've had the university. That's right. That's wow. quite significant. So my uh, my colleagues from from the UK and France and Germany, Australia and the other big powers, uh, they always ask me the question, how come a small insignificant country like Norway gets to do this and we don't? <laughs> I, I don't know the truth to that, but I tried to tell them a story that the Marines were training in Norway and got their ass whooped. <laughs> by you, by the Norwegians? And... <laughs> They wondered how that came by, and, and they wanted an instructor over here. That's not a true story, but it's a good one <laughs> I like to tell. Yeah, you might as well, in, in absence of the truth, at least be entertaining. True. Right? So yeah. uh, on the other side, so uh, what does the university or command staff college get from having a Norwegian fact advisor? I think I can give another look at things coming from a small country with, a, I would say, almost an insignificant size military, but still with a significant interest in the world like prospering peace, democracy, and, and, and human rights. So we tend to think that we're a world power, like in the humanity part. I can give, a, I can offer another look at how to understand complex problems and probably also how to solve them. Mm-hmm. Well, in coming to the conversation we'll have in a few minutes on the Arctic and cold weather operations, you know a little bit about that too. And, True. And we hope we don't have to fight in the Arctic or against a cold weather adversary because of what that means in terms of the potential for a nuclear engagement, if we're being frank. Yeah. But you all certainly have the experience and the expertise. Well, that's true. And and the Arctic has been, for the I would say, since the Cold War, it's been a very quiet place, mm-hmm. which is characterized by, by um, cooperation between uh, all the eight Arctic countries and, and all the other interests in that area. So we even managed to settle a dispute we had with Russia for 40 years, I would say eight, seven, eight years ago, by like um, negotiating. So the Arctic has been a quiet place. However, now with the ice melting and I would say more uh, oil, gas and mineral resources being found, there's significant tensions that may arise Mm -hmm. because of two things. So Russia has, it's their background as well, one of the biggest Arctic countries. They have severely invested in their facilities in the Arctic. They have invested in their seaports, in their airports. Uh, they have established uh, the world's largest icebreaker fleet. Uh, and they also file claim to the UN about their territorial claims. Because the ice is withdrawing, another seaway is open between Europe and Asia. And that brings the Chinese into mm-hmm. the area as well. So China sees this and they have invested both in the Russian infrastructure, but they also they established a science uh, station on our soil in one of the islands, and they did the same in Iceland, I believe also Greenland. So they're heavily invested, and they call themselves a near-Arctic country mm-hmm. and have published, I guess it was recently, uh, about a year ago, their own Arctic strategy. 
So Russia and China, which is also by your security strategy defined as the the great power competition again. If you take that and apply that to the Arctic, the US is not the strongest power in the Arctic. Right now it's Russia. And I know that um, the D- your DOD is drafting a new Arctic strategy, probably to release June this year. And I'm pretty sure by reading the national security strategy and the national defense strategy that this Arctic strategy will address that particular well, we, problem. We should have you back on the show when the when the strategy comes out and get your feedback on it. Yeah, that would be interesting. Analysis. Yeah. 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 So coming back to your time at, at Marine Corps University, either at EWS as a student, CSC as a student, or now as a faculty member, what are some of the challenges that you've noticed in this multinational conflict? Because as a student, you are one of several international students. You're the only international faculty member. But are there challenges that you've, other than the language skills, and we understand that uh, can be a challenge for anybody, but yeah, there's a there's a couple of things that's that's uh, obvious um, when you look at them in depth, but may not be so obvious at the first glance. So you may think that, or people may think that the military culture of Norway and the United States or the Marine Corps is is quite similar because we we've been working together for a long time, and and but it's not. I mean, the uh, we share the same philosophy, the war fighting philosophy, maneuver warfare doctrine. Decentralized leadership, combined arms, joint multinational. We, we share the same idea. But in practicality, because of our na- different national cultures or characteristics, we apply them a little bit different. So let's start with the with the easy one. So formalities, like we don't have sir or ma'am in our language. So like hmm. we are very informal, flat hierarchics. Uh, and um, so when we, with that national characteristic, utilize our understanding of maneuver warfare theory and decentralized leadership, it looks like a ragtag from from your perspective because you're <laughs> more disciplined and more formal than we are. And that may cause some, some, some friction every now and then. So it, it's not only you, though. So we are the strange ones because if we work with the Germans as well, they are more formal and we tend to be very flat. We don't really care about rank. It, it's what you can do for us that, that's matter. Uh, and other nations, the bigger nations, they are more formal and that means something for like the cooperation. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. The Marine Corps certainly sees itself as being very disciplined. We might not say formal, but we would certainly say disciplined. But we also, I, I say we as a, a civilian who's worked with the Marine Corps for a decade, not being a Marine myself, but the ethos seems to be one that embraces the the spirit of being the ragtag, smaller, sort of insurgent service in within the larger context of DOD, certainly in the context of big army or big navy. But you're saying, no, Norway is the real the ragtag, ragtag. <laughs> rat band of brothers and sisters. Well, I guess everything is relative, right? So <laughs> we are very small compared to the Marine Corps. And the Marine Corps describes itself as very small compared to U.S. Army. So everything is relative. But I mean, just the way we'll, we tend to look at problems and, and how we give junior leaders authority to make decisions on their own. I know that the Marine Corps puts pride in that, like decentralized leadership. And that's I've seen that work quite well. But I would say that we go even even farther by uh, empowering our junior leaders to, to make more decisions um, based on our national character, I, I would say. So who speaks to who? It's quite significant in a, in a Marine Corps organization. For us, it doesn't really matter. Even as a battalion commander, my, my soldiers... My my gunner, he had been a gunner for like 10 years, like machine gunner. Mm-hmm. My driver had been a driver for my infantry vehicle fighter, fighting, uh, infantry fighting vehicle for eight years. 
Of course, they both called me by my first name. Um, even the enlisted soldier would call me by my first name. If you do that in American battalion, I think that would mean like that's that's undisciplined. Right. But even though they do that, I would still. I wouldn't say we have any discipline problem at all. If I pointed towards the enemy and to ask them to attack, they will do it anyway, even though they call me by my first name. So <laughs> just a different way of looking at, at it. So, Did that cause any friction either when Marines were training with you in Norway or when you were working with Marines in Iraq? Or is that one of those you recognize that cultural difference and it doesn't impede effective operational or tactical action? It's funny you ask that question because um, when we deployed to Iraq, it was a quick deployment. So we we had a smaller contingent in Iraq for a couple of years. So we we had some knowledge about it, but this this operation was was quick in a few weeks. So we prioritized to do a little bit of cultural studies, like in the Iraqis. So we so we did that, and we we utilized all our experience from working with Iraqis, and we kind of assumed that we would work well with the other coalition, like that would be. Um, U.S. Marines, U.S. Army, U.S. Air Force on that base. It would be some uh, special forces components. It would be Danish uh, and, and British troops. Didn't pay any atten- attention to the uh, military culture of these, but I should have. So w- when we arrived and we were in a time constraint, I let my battalion staff loose, meaning that lieutenants, captains, sergeants, corporals, they just swarmed the base to find their uh, their partners without any formal introductions. That shocked the mm-hmm. Americans a little bit. So after a few bumps in the roads, a few awkward moments, we found a really good way to work together. And and the Marines and, and then my unit, we worked very well and we advised and accompanied the Iraqi forces all the way to the Syrian border as one joint team. So just... It's just like getting to know the new kids in the street, I guess. <laughs> it worked out in the end. It worked out well, yeah. very well. Good. So let's shift gears a little, and let's, or a lot, and let's talk about cold weather operations. So the Daily Beast recently ran an article suggesting that Russia is cleaning our clock in the Arctic. And from your comments a few minutes ago, it sounds like you agree. Without burning any diplomatic bridges or spilling any national secrets, what should the Marine Corps, what should the United States be doing to better position ourselves in the Arctic? Yeah, how many hours we have? <laughs> no. First, um, just like the Marine Corps planning process, I would say, which is the most genius the Marine Corps has done in my lifetime, is changing step one to be mission analysis to problem framing. Just understanding the problem before you try to solve it. That's a fantastic move. I think that happened between my EWS and CSC class. But anyway, so understanding the problem would be the first requirement and what is the problem to be solved in the arctic depends on a little bit of where you stand so if you look at it first from our perspective from the norwegian side we of course we are a founding member of nato and we stand fast with our nato allies and our bilateral allies and partners in all the sanctions against russia on the other side we're also a neighbor with Russia, and we've been that for many, many, many years. And Norway needs to maintain that um, relationship with Russia at the same time being a, a steady partner, which I don't envy the politicians who are in that position. So they need to, to practice statements craft at a really high level, which they do. So understanding the, the particulars of the Arctic. So who are the actors in the Arctic? Russia is by far the strongest actor, and they're, most of their nuclear capabilities are located, both their submarines and their air-delivered and, and also the, their missiles are in the Arctic region. Um, so we, we know that. Um, everybody knows that. That's not a secret. So when Russia and China's developments 
perhaps will be met with more American interest, the Arctic will be a, a more tense area. The Arctic nations, up until now at least, have been able to solve most issues by by cooperation through the Arctic Council and other 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 medias. Um, they're still unsolved territorial claims. Like there's a there's a tension between the United States and Canada, for example, about the Northwestern Passage, mm-hmm. and there's there's other issues as well. It's important to understand the history of that part. Uh, speaking about the operational environment, so when it comes to, to ocean mapping, it's not by far done the same way as in the most of the traffic places on Earth. So there's a lot of open white spaces there. Satellite radios doesn't work as well because there's fewer satellites. There's a lot other, I mean, things to consider, other dynamics. Coming to the military side, though, what should the Marines do? After understanding their problems and what the American strategy in the Arctic should be, which I don't know and I'm not an expert <laughs> on what will be there, but I, I have my ideas. I think, I think that the U.S. will not just stand watching Russia and China growing stronger by their doorstep because the United States is an Arctic country as well. Right. The Marines, I think, would have to go back and do what they're primary objective is to be the nation's expeditionary readiness force being able to conduct larger scale or medium scale amphibious operations in a very cold environment. That's demanding. Uh, and that requires uh, knowledge, training, and a good partner like Norway, for example. Uh, well, so you have recently taught an elective on cold weather operations. I did. The Marines have spent a lot of time in very warm environments over the past I mean, few decades. This isn't just a post-September 11th. This goes back significantly before that. How does the Marine Corps retool to fight in a cold weather environment? Do we need a significant? Is this just a training, TTPs, we need to shift mm, and, yeah, that, and get some good gear? Or do we need to fundamentally reconstitute? It, Would we need it's to It's a million-dollar question. So any, any operational climate is, is unique. So what's unique about the winter? The uniqueness about the winter is it will kill you. I mean, if when you're fighting in a in a cold climate with sub-zero temperature, we used to say that we have a third enemy. He's called General Winter. And the, the, the cold hard truth, pun intended there, was uh, if you walk out in the cold sub-zero temperature, the clock starts ticking. Eventually, you will die if you don't get back into the heat. Realizing that when you're cold, when your fingers are frozen or your, or your toes are frozen, you can't just suck it up, which I've heard several times. The, Marine, the Marines are tough and hard. I know that. And I've heard, hey, suck it up, Marine. That doesn't work in, the clim- in, in that climate. You will lose your fingers and your toes, and you will eventually die. You need to understand and have that respect for the climate, um, being able to, to use whatever means you have to get a shelter and warm, use your clothes right. Your weapons will jam um, because of the uh, shifting temperatures and the ice and the snow. Vehicles will have problems. How do you land a helicopter in heavy snow, for example? Ships will fr- will freeze. They will have like covering covered with ice. There's a lot of things that in- inflict both man and machine, and you need to experience that. Of course, you can read about it, but you need to experience and be exposed to the cold with your warfighting capabilities, like your warfighting equipment, over time, and see how it how it in- influences you and, and 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 the equipment. So that means that you have to spend considerable time in that climate, not only going there for a week or two. So so what the Marines are doing now with the rotational force, the Murphy, Marine Rotational Force Europe, is a good thing of exposing people for six months or more in that environment. 
The big question that arises, is that enough to come to pair or better with native forces who are born and raised Mm -hmm. in that climate? That's a big question. So, yeah. Hopefully we won't have to find out. Exactly. And and the better prepared we are, the less chance it is that we need to practice, right? Mm, Yeah. So if people wanted to learn more about cold weather operations or just generally about the Norwegian-American partnership, where can they look? Uh, last autumn, there was a really good book being published, I think, about from a retired Marine, um, Hampton Sides on Desperate Ground, which is about one of the uh, one of the great stories about how the Marines fought and and survived the, both the cold weather and the Chinese attack in Chosin River in the Korean War. Mm-hmm. That's a great book. The book shows how leadership at both the divisional but also below junior leadership, how, how important it is to make people being able to survive, take care of their equipment and their own um, squads, and how to fight in that, um, that climate. That's a good starting point. When it comes to the um, U.S.-Norwegian relationship, I would say just for a, for a start, go to the uh, Norwegian government's Department of Defense and State Department's websites and read all the speeches and all the programs. They're the, by far, the U.S. is the biggest ally of Norway, and we hope to be a big ally to the, to the United States as well. And mm-hmm. it's a good waste. Good. Thank you. So last question, slightly related or, or completely unrelated, but what are you reading right now that our students ought to know about? So... Recently, I've been reading about Gettysburg because we went there for a staff ride. And (laughs) it's always fascinating about Gettysburg. But uh, that aside, um, I was reading uh, Ofer Friedman's book, uh, Russian Hybrid War. The last, I would say, eight to ten years, hybrid wars is probably the most used and misused term uh, in our area. And I think uh, Friedman gives a good kind of understanding of how the Russians view what we call hybrid warfare. Mm -hmm. And the one big takeaway without revealing that the butler did it kind of thing, uh, was that um, when the Russians looked at uh, the Cold War and, and kind of analyzed why they lost it, they viewed the means from the United States and from the West and from NATO, the non-military means, as the most important. And they mirrored that back and they started working on that strategy themselves. So to understand how the Russians are thinking and what so-called hybrid wars are, we should probably look at our own history. Mm. Interesting. And as a as an individual or maybe as a country, as a military, to put you on the spot, Russia is the number one threat that Norway identifies? Yeah. 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 So uh, we, we wouldn't say that there is a threat, but of course there is a threat. So nobody nobody's afraid in Norway, mm-hmm. but we have a, a growing superpower close to our neighborhood and a superpower or it's not a superpower because compared to the United States, it's not. Originally, it, it's a great power, and especially the uh, the 2008 Georgian war and the 2014 or 13-14 Crimean war. That that I think that shocked the Norwegian, at least the, the part of Norway who believed that now Russia is going to come into the fold of peaceful nations and finally the perpetual peace of Europe. Is there? Nobody believes that anymore. We mm-hmm. we need to maintain that relationship, but also be prepared to defend our borders and our interests. Well, TB, thank you so much for coming on the show. To keep up with the good work of the Marine Corps War College, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at at College. Follow Marine Corps University on social media at at Marine Corps U. Special thanks to our intrepid producer, Lieutenant Colonel Jason Palma. 
I'm your host, Becky Johnson. Thanks for listening to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded, innovative podcast of the Marine Corps War College. This concludes the EGA podcast. Thank you for joining us. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the United States Marine Corps or the Department of Defense. You can follow the Marine Corps War College on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at at McWarCollege. And as always, our podcast music is Stuck in Traffic by Romero. Have a great day.